help support the Jiminy Cricket podcast and the Disney Chris website by becoming a Patreon subscriber. By joining our illustrious roster of supporters, you will receive exclusive rewards every month, including audio content, Disney video commentaries, and an exclusive Patreon subscribers-only podcast called Down the Rabbit Hole. Be sure to check out our new donation levels and special rewards at www.patreon.com slash DisneyChris. Jiminy Crickets! Jiminy Cricket is the name I'm a happy-go-lucky fellow Always getting in wrong For singing my song A merry old soul am I Jiminy Cricket is the name I'll be hanging around this evening I'll be tipping my hat And telling you that Jiminy Cricket is the name Hello, Cricketeers. Welcome to our first uh, non-musical episode. That seems weird to say because (laughs) (laughs) we're talking about two musicals, but it's not just a music show. This is an actual regular show. The first one of 2023, and I'm here with Ruthie. Hello, Ruthie. Hello, Chris. Hello, Cricketeers. And a long-awaited topic, we were going to do this last year, and it got bumped again and again. We're finally getting to it. We're going to talk about two Disney musicals, live-action Disney musicals from the late 60s, The Happiest Millionaire, and the one and only Genuine Original Family Band. But before we get to that, we have a very important announcement. Jiminy Cricket's podcast proudly endorses Concierge Vacation Planners, a Disney-authorized specialty vacation planning service. Concierge doesn't just book your trip, they walk you through the entire process, helping you plan out every detail, one-on-one, to make the very most out of your vacation while saving you both time and money. And the best part is, they charge nothing for their services. You will get the exact same pricing as if you booked your vacation directly through Disney. But in using Concierge expertise, you've got the added bonus of having your very own personal Disney Guru Planner by your side. Both Ruthie and I are also satisfied customers, and we just can't recommend them enough. Visit their website at www.concierge.com. That's www.concierz.com, as in mouse ears. So when you book your next Disney vacation, be it Walt Disney World, Disneyland, the Disney Cruise Line, or many of the other Disney destinations available worldwide, contact Concierge Vacation Planners, and be sure to tell them Disney Chris sent you. Now, we've completed quite a few pictures, but there's one special one that I just have to mention. It's titled The uh, Happiest Millionaire. Now, this is one we call a happy family musical. It's the true story of the fabulous Anthony Drexel Biddle family of Philadelphia in the era of 1917. Now, the stars are Fred McMurray, a real Disney favorite, as Mr. Biddle, the lovely Greer Garson as Mrs. Biddle, two newcomers, 
Leslie Ann Warren and John Davidson playing Cordelia Biddle and Angie Duke. And it was the romance between these two that brought together the Biddle and Duke family and introducing the fabulous Tommy Steele, star of the Broadway hit Half a Sixpence. Tommy plays the part of John Lawless, the butler. Now, The Happiest Millionaire won't be released until late next year. So let's get on with the business at hand. First of all, uh, Ruthie is uh, going to talk about The Happiest Millionaire as far as its production and, and uh, the making of and all the behind-the-scenes things that we have been able to find out. So why don't you take it over, Ruthie? This movie was released June 23rd, 1967. We originally wanted to do this episode, like Chris said, because it was the 55th anniversary of this film last year. But the second movie is having an anniversary this year, so it still ties in. And uh, The Happiest Millionaire is based on a 1955 book called My Philadelphia Father that was written by Cordelia Biddle as told to Kyle Crichton. And after this book was published, there was early interest in this story for a stage adaptation. And so Crichton adapted the story into a play called The Happiest Millionaire. And that play opened on Broadway November 20th, 1956 at the Lyceum Theater on Broadway. And it's as we should point out, based on actual people. This is based on, this was, this was an autobiographical story by Cordelia Biddle, who is a character in this story. Right. And so the play, Walter Pigeon, the famous actor, was the one who portrayed Anthony Drexel Biddle and George Gizzard is the one who played Angie. And this was Pigeon's first appearance on Broadway in 21 years. And MGM obtained the film rights in exchange for permitting him to appear in the play. So he was doing movies and he had a, a contract with MGM at the time. The production ran for 271 performances and it closed on July 13, 1957. Then in the early 1960s, while Disney acquired the rights from MGM to the play, and he originally was going to just make it as a film, and not the thought was not originally to have it as a musical. But then with the box office success of Mary Poppins, along with other films that he didn't make, like My Fair Lady and The Sound of Music, it kind of was a thought that Bill Walsh had, who he was the original producer of this film, he was thinking maybe this story would also kind of fit into the musical format as well. And they, they could kind of make it more of like an event film. But then after that thought was agreed upon, Walt actually reassigned Bill Walsh to Blackbeard's Ghost and Bill Anderson became the producer of this film. Yeah, I think I saw somewhere or read somewhere that Bill Walsh was kind of taking it in a direction Walt wasn't really a fan of. So mm -hmm. he you know, reassigned him and got someone else because he wanted it to go in a more comedy direction, I believe. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and I don't know that uh, uh, Bill Walsh's version was what Walt Disney had in mind. Yeah. 
So this film is directed by Norman Tokar, and he's a director that Disney used all the time. So just a couple of films that he directed besides this one is The Ugly Dotson and Follow Me Boys. He did a few others as well. And the screenplay is written by A.J. Carruthers. He also wrote the screenplay to Emile and the Detectives and Miracle of the White Stallions. And his screenplay is based on the play that was based on the book. I know that's really confusing, but... <laughs> he took dialogue directly from the Broadway play version, in other words. Right. Mm-hmm. Also for the film, the choreography duo of Mark Rue and Dee Dee Wood returned. They were the ones who did the choreography for Mary Poppins. And then, as we mentioned, the Sherman brothers did wrote all the music for the film. And again, similar to Mary Poppins. So this was, again, like I mentioned, the, the success of Mary Poppins and the thought that this could be a musical, kind of the, the storyline of this, a family. They, they thought it could really be a really good musical, like very similar to Mary Poppins. So originally, the Sherman brothers and A.J. Carruthers wanted Rex Harrison to play the lead. But Disney really wanted um, Fred McMurray, and of course he got his way. Rex Harrison actually wouldn't have been able to play the role anyway because he was in the middle of shooting Dr. Doolittle. But I just want to make a little note here. So the thing about this film, as we talk about it a little bit more, you probably will get this impression but Walt really identified with Anthony Drexel Biddle the story the type of person that he was the fact that he was you know he was driven he was enthusiastic he was happy even though he had made a lot of money and done a lot of things in his life and he was always looking for something new to do and something to uh, you know keep him busy he was not happy with settling down and being like, okay, I've, I've lived my life. I've done what I needed to do. And so Walt really identified with this character, which is part of the reason why he wanted Fred McMurray to play him because Fred McMurray was always somebody that he saw as himself. Mm-hmm. So that is definitely something that you want to think about when you watch the movie, when you hear about the story and the character of Anthony Drexel Biddle. So in January of 1966, a key role went to Tommy Steele, who had achieved success on the Broadway stage in Half a Sixpence. And that's Walt had seen him in that. And then Walt had also seen a 1965 CBS television production of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, which starred Leslie Ann Warren. And so that's kind of where he saw her and wanted to bring her on. And she actually did sign a contract with the Disney company. And then the role of uh, McMurray's wife, so this is Mrs. Biddle, went to Greer Garson, a very well-known stage actress. And then this was unfortunately the last production, the last live action production that Walt Disney participated in before his death and it came out after his death. Right, all the filming was completed. Right. And it probably would have come out sooner had he not have died. I'm sure everything got delayed because of that. So one of the things that I'm going to mention as we go on is the length of this film. The original runtime of this film is 164 minutes. That's the final edited movie. But... It becomes like a little bit of a debate 
between theaters and things, and even within the studio because people thought it was too long or people, some of the people didn't like certain um, segments. So like Bill Anderson, he didn't like the musical number that at the, at the end mm-hmm. called It Won't Be Long Till Christmas. Mm-hmm. And then Card Walker wanted to cut it even more. And so that it became like a little bit of a feud between the two uh, about the actual editing of this film. Mm-hmm. But it was finally released. The original 164 length movie was released in Hollywood at the Pantages Theater on June 23rd, 1967. And this was on reserved seating basis, which at that time meant that the tickets cost more. This was a road show. So what happened was back then they had special films that were considered epics and um, good examples of other movies would be a movie like Ben-Hur or Lawrence of Arabia. Those types of movies would first be released as a road show, which meant that it would appear across the country in huge fancy theaters, you know, like the big movie houses. And it would be an extended version. It would generally have an overture Uh, It would have an intermission, and it would have special music that would play during the intermissions, and they also would charge a premium ticket price. There were no um, cartoons or newsreels at the beginning. So it was like a night at the theater, but it, it was a movie instead of... And they would give out programs, and it was, you know... So they would do that for various big budget big movies and some examples of musicals that did that very successfully would be Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady. And so Disney was sort of planning on this being the same sort of situation. So when they released it initially, it had its big Hollywood premiere at the Pantages, but it also was playing in theaters across the country in big movie houses just on a limited release basis at its full length with the intermissions and everything. It was going to premiere at Radio City Music Hall, which it did November 30th, 1967. So it's a few months later. But one of the things that they had to do in order for it to be premiering there in New York was to cut 20 minutes from the film. So they really cut the, the last 20 minutes of the film. Um, and then for general release, they actually cut it even shorter. So the, for the Radio City Music Hall run, it was 144 minutes, and the general release was 118 minutes. Mm-hmm. But for the release, it was not received well. This film was not um, very popular with the critics, and the Los Angeles Times stated that the film was a disappointment and compared it unfavorably to Mary Poppins. Mm -hmm. And the quote here is, there's no such unity of interest and identification in The Happiest Millionaire. If there's not really anybody to root against, except maybe Geraldine Page as a tart-tongued Mrs. Duke, there are too many people to root for, and each of them is pursuing his own storyline. So even though this uh, film was not well-received critically, 
it did receive an Academy Award nomination for costume design, and you can definitely tell that in the film. They spent a lot of money on costume and also set design in this film. So, a few other things I just want to mention. So, soundtrack and home video release. So, when the film was released, the original cast soundtrack was released on Buena Vista Records in stereo and mono versions. And then a second cast recording with studio singers and orchestrations by Tutti Camerata appeared on Disneyland Records, also in stereo and mono. And then the cast soundtrack was re-released on CD in 2002, remastered from the original eight-track master tapes to reduce the heavy reverb from the original LP. And this soundtrack is currently available on iTunes. Yeah, I have two copies, believe it or not, because two different people bought me as a gift in used record stores because they knew I liked Disney music. So I actually had two, two copies of the album at one point. Hated it because they did something very bizarre with the reverb. Hmm. It was just very echoey and didn't sound anything like the music in the movie. It was, it was, they were trying something experimental with the sound and it was not a successful experiment. And it ended up ruining, to me, the, the entire sound of the soundtrack. When they did re-release it on CD, there is a noticeable improvement, but it's still not ideal. Mm. I would much rather listen to it in the film itself, because it's in stereo and it's good sound, but it doesn't have all that ridiculous added echo to the music, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is just infuriating to me. I hate the way that sounds. Mm-hmm. It works for some of the songs and definitely not for others. Yeah. Like, I feel like Are We Dancing works really well with the echo because it's a love song. And Fortuosity for, I'm not sure why, but it seems to work well. But mm. a song like Watch Your Footwork is terrible. Because it's like a ragtime type number, mm-hmm. and it sounds awful with that reverb issue. Mm-hmm. But that being said, continue on. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, some of the songs from the film have been covered and also like re-released in different albums, like Are mm-hmm. We Dancing and Fortuosity were both added to um, a couple of CD collections, the Sherman Brothers compilation, and then the Sherman Brothers songbook compilation set. Both of those were included there. The Supremes covered It Won't Be Long Till Christmas for their planned album of Disney covers, but the tracks from that session were not released until the 80s. Yeah, their album never came out. Yeah. And there's a few other ones that you brought to my attention, Chris. Yeah, Tutti Camerata did um, an album for this. Um, in addition to the soundtrack album, there was like, it was sort of like a cover album where he reorchestrated all the songs. And a popular uh, chorus group, the Mike Sam Singers, did all the vocals. So they were all sung as a chorus. And every song from the film is included on the 2D Camarada album. And uh, also, oddly, Count Basie did an album where he covered all of the songs in uh, his jazz style, just as instrumentals, which is interesting. And I know Carol Burnett also uh, covered Fortuosity on her album, 
in the late 60s. That's me by word Fortuosity me Twinkle in the eye word Sometimes castles fall to the ground But that's where four-leaf clovers are found Fortuosity Lucky chances Fortuitous little happy happenstances I don't worry cause everywhere I see That every bit of life is lit by fortuosity Fortuosity, that's me own word Fortuosity, me never feel Along with the soundtrack release, of course, later on, this film was released for home viewing. So Mm -hmm. it was first released on VHS format in 1983, then reissued in 1986. And these releases were both the 144-minute version. Right. So the the, uh, middle version, the one that was for the um, Radio City Music Hall. And that's the version I grew up with. I didn't even know there was more to the movie. A longer version. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the original film, the 164 minute film, was not reissued and did not appear on television until 1984 when the this version was screened at the Los Angeles International Film Expo and then it aired on the Disney Channel. Yeah, I remember they made a big deal about it being on the mm-hmm. Disney Channel. Yeah. I remember seeing it and being amazed by the extra scenes. And I feel like they had, and I could be remembering this wrong because what was this 30, almost 30 years ago, and I was very young, but um, it seems to me like they kind of did a haphazard job of putting the footage back in because I noticed it. I noticed there was some obvious glitches in the cutting of how it jumped from certain scenes that they added back in and the um, audio quality seemed off but then when they eventually re-released it or Ruthie's going to mention later I think they corrected all those issues so now it when you watch it in the full original 160 plus minute version which is fully available now it seems 
like it's the, it doesn't seem choppy at all. It seems like it flows flawlessly together. All right. So both the long and short versions of the film were released on DVD on July 20th, 1999. And that's the version that they improved those editing issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, they re-released the film on DVD June 1st, 2004, featuring only the long version, and that included the intermission music at the yes. end of Act 1, the exit music and the at the end of Act 2, and the mm-hmm. elements that had been missing from the original DVD release. Right. And then this whole entire version, the full-length movie, is available on Disney+, Plus, and that came available June 11th, 2021. That uh, wasn't available when Disney Plus first launched. It was added sometime later. Right. So that is the release history of the film. Just a few other things that I want to mention, a little bit of like aftermath and representation. So in 2017, and I I believe we talked about this, but Leslie Ann Warren and Joyce Bolifont, they reprised their roles from this film in a pair of benefit concerts for Broadway Care's Equity Fights AIDS. And what this was just one night with two performances, December 3rd, 2017 at Joe Pub's at the Public Theater to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the film. So I'm not exactly sure what they did, but she recreated her performance along with Joyce Bolifont. And I believe there was a couple of other people who, not, not people from the movie, but that came and kind of supplemented performances here or there. But I'm not exactly sure how, if they just sang songs or did they do any acting or anything like that? Because I couldn't really find much more information other than the announcement that it was going to happen, but nothing about the actor, like anybody reviewing it after the fact. Well, I assume if Joyce Bullifant was involved, they replicated the scene from Bayam Pum Pum. And they may have continued it from there to transition into the ballroom and where she meets Angie Duke mm-hmm. and they probably I'm, this is totally guessing don't quote me on this but if there were more actors involved than just them two I'm guessing because they were the only two in that scene so I'm guessing the logical thing would be to transition to the next scene which included Are We Dancing so they may have had Leslie Ann Warren dance with another actor playing the part of Angie or Duke and they probably sang Are We Dancing? But I'm only guessing. Mm-hmm. I'm right. 99% sure they would have included by Um Pum Pum because that was right. that was Joyce Bullifant's scene. Only scene. And then she also appeared in the next scene but just as a one of the dancers within the scene. Right. There is actually some representation of this film in the parks. The first one is that a few songs from the film play in the Main Street area background music, and I don't yeah. know if that's at Walt Disney World. It is. It, yeah. It is. I'm very, I worked on Main Street. I know that loop, too. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it's the almost, with only a couple changes, it's almost the exact same loop as the Disneyland one was. Yeah. But at Disneyland, they also have a shop called the Fortuosity Shop. <laughs> this was built in 2008, and it replaced the Upjohn Pharmacy on Main Street. And it sells jewelry, watches, clothing, and accessories. And it is still there today. 
so yes, you are correct in that it did replace the Upjohn Pharmacy, but the Upjohn Pharmacy was replaced by the New Century Clock Shop, which was then replaced by the Fortuosity Shop. So the, it's the third iteration, it's the Fortuosity. Yeah. So I was looking up online and there is a telephone booth in Club 33 that there is some sort of debate as to whether this telephone booth was the actual booth that they used in the film, yeah. which is, it's predominant in the beginning of the movie, the telephone yes. booth. It's right um, in their main foyer in, the, right. in the big house they live in, yeah. So there's an online debate, but I actually found an article written by Disney. It was an, actually an, an interview with Leslie Ann Warren where they mm -hmm. talked about it. And this is how they described the telephone booth. So it's adapted directly from the one in the Biddle's foyer from the movie, mm -hmm. while the telephone booth in the movie appears larger than the one in Club 33, certain pieces such as the beveled glass windows and part of the carved wood moldings are identical and most likely taken from the original film prop. Okay, so they reconfigured it using right. parts from the original. So that it is, is a refurbishment and also a new one at the same so time. So both sides are technically right. Right. <laughs> and I do know that when they remodeled it, they did something very bizarre. I still don't understand it. They moved that telephone booth upstairs to the main, not the dining room, but like the waiting area, I guess. Mm -hmm. From and it and they have a, a seat inside at a little table, and it looks like a table for one. Mm. So it's like, who would go to Club 33 by themselves and eat? <laughs> I don't know, but I and think it's just, <laughs> yeah, but it's there and they actually put the, that vulture from the um, trophy room, you mm -hmm. know, where they used to have the microphones on yes. top of the phone booth. I've seen pictures of it. So the phone booth is still there, but it's no longer in the lobby the original lobby next to the elevator they used to have. Right. Because mm -hmm. they don't really use that elevator anymore. No. So, yeah. So in 2012, also in Club 33, they had a display of the costume sketches from the film, which is mm -hmm. the sketches, obviously, that got them an Academy Award nomination. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if that was just like a limited time like display, because the, the Club 33, they rotate displays. So it probably isn't still there, but they actually did have that at one time. Mm -hmm. And then last but not least, the most recent representation of this film in the parks is Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway at mm -hmm. Disneyland, which just opened a few days ago. Mm -hmm. There is, in the queue, they have a lot of different callbacks to different films and different things. And mm -hmm. one of them is a poster titled The Scroogiest Millionaire. And it's made up of Scrooge McDuck and his Duck family members in the same position yeah. as the poster for it's this just, film. They redid the poster and replaced all the humans with duck people right. <laughs> from the Disney duck family. <laughs> right. So I thought that was really cute and I wanted to make sure I mentioned it. So now what we're going to do is go through the score of The Happiest Billionaire. And we'll talk about... Um, who sang it and who performed in it and how it relates to the story. And as we do that, as we reach different actors that were in the scenes with these songs, we'll stop and talk about them. For Tommy Steele, 
for um, Leslie Ann Warren and John Davidson, we're going to do like a comprehensive biography of those three people. And the rest of them, we're just going to go through some of their major film credits, because most of them we've talked about before. And in other situations, we will be talking about them in detail in future episodes. So it'd be a little redundant. But Tommy Steele, Leslie Ann Warren, and John Davidson, this is their one moment to shine in a Disney podcast. So we thought we should give them the full treatment. Because Leslie Ann Warren and John Davidson were in two movies, but we're talking about both of those in this episode. So the first song that we hear when the movie begins after the overture is the song Fortuosity. And I'm sure Disney thought that this would be the next zippity doodah or bibbity bobbity boo. They they had high hopes for this. And it has had moderate fame and success, but it has never reached the um, iconic status of the aforementioned. But I feel it's a terrific song. And it's definitely um, a song that's um, an earworm. And uh, I guess the Sherman brothers are known for their earworms. And this is a great... There's nothing wrong with being an earworm. That's not said in a negative way. Something is an earworm because it's catchy. And something's catchy because it's enjoyable. <laughs> but this is, this is the very definition of a catchy little tune. And this is performed by Tommy Steele, who is uh, John Lawless, who is a butler, who has just days before landed in Philadelphia by boat via Ireland. He's an immigrant who has just arrived, and he has very optimistic uh, hopes for his life in a new country. And this song is about how you know, he's starting a new life and how he feels his luck is is gonna come and fortuosity really is a word before uh, that sort of means fortune and um, what would be the other word that it's combining? Well, fortune and optimism is how I would see it as. And so we sort of are introduced to the setting of a good part of this film, which is 1917 Philadelphia and we're in a very affluent neighborhood everyone is dressed very fancy all the houses are beautiful the streets are impeccably clean and um, everyone's friendly and and it's a bright happy sunny day it's kind of the idealized Americana scene and uh, this new person has arrived and he's happy to be there and optimistic about his life ahead. Well now, ain't this an elegant neighborhood? All the residents dress so fine. One day off the boat am I with a job that's nearly mine. Tis a job with an elegant millionaire and his elegant family. Today I move from immigrant to high society. Now you may call that luck, and you may call it fortune, but me, myself, I call it fortuosity. 
That's me by word Fortuosity to me A twinkle in the eye word Sometimes castles fall to the ground But that's where four-leaf clovers are found Fortuosity Lucky chances Fortuitious little Happy happenstances I don't worry Cause everywhere I see That every bit of life Is lit by fortuosity That's me own word Fortuosity and me never feel alone word Round the corner under a tree Good fortunes waiting Just wait and see Fortuosity Lucky chances Fortuitious little Happy happenstances I keep smiling Cause my philosophy Is do your best And leave the rest to Fortuosity I keep smiling Cause my philosophy Is do and leave the rest to fortuosity so it's a good way to start the film at the end of the song he rings the doorbell to the um, little residence where the, the neighborhood cop has pointed him to and he takes a look at the building at first and he's just sort of his jaw drops at the size of this house. Then he rings the doorbell, and at the end of the song, the maid opens the door, and um, so begins the story. So before we continue on, let me talk about the actor who performed the song and played the role of the soon-to-be butler, John Lawless. And that would be Tommy Steele. And this is his only Disney appearance. And he was born in 1938. He's still alive. He's in his 70s, I believe. And, um, yeah, 38, 2023. Yeah, he's in his 70s, right? So he was born in London, England, and his birth name was Tommy Hicks. And um, he was a sickly child, and he spent a good deal of his childhood in hospital. At one point, his uh, parents took him to a show at the London Palladium, and that's where he decided he somehow wanted to be involved in show business. Later on, he joined the Merchant Navy, but he was not eligible for national service 
because he had a heart disease. Cardiomyopathy. So, um, while he was working as a merchant seaman, he learned to play guitar and began performing country music and calypso music. And one of his inspirations was Hank Williams, the American rockabilly singer, country and rock singer. And he claimed that when a ship was serving on a dock in Norfolk, Virginia, in the U.S., he saw Buddy Holly perform in Virginia, and he fell in love with rock and roll. So he wanted to get involved in rock and roll at that point. And Tommy Steele is considered to be Britain's very first major rock and roll star. And on shore leave, in 1956, he met a writer you may have heard of named Lionel Bart, a famous songwriter today. For example, he wrote the music to the musical Oliver. And another uh, actor named Mike Pratt at a party in Soho, London. Soho is kind of the avant-garde kind of college town section of London with lots of nightclubs for young people. It still is basically that type of scene today. And the trio began working together and they formed a band called the Cavemen. And a performance in Soho where he was backed by the members of a, a group called the Viper Skiffle Group at uh, a coffee bar was seen by John Kennedy. And he was a photographer and a publicity man. And within two weeks after him seeing Tommy perform, he got him a, a, a deal with Decca Records. Have you heard of Decca Records? I don't think yep. they're around anymore, but they used to be a big record company. Uh, so Steele's first single with Decca was called Rock with the Caveman. And this was one of the very first British produced and performed rock and roll hits. And it reached number 13 on the UK singles chart in November of 1956. Before that, of course, rock and roll was equally as popular in, in the UK as it was in the United States, but it was all American music. This is the first time that a, a, a group from the UK, a singer from the UK, had kind of broken out and become famous on their own right. So he promoted the single with a television appearance, and it was on Jack Payne's BBC series called Off the Record. And upon that appearance on TV, he became a teen idol, a national teen idol, and he was dubbed Britain's Elvis. And um, although then and now his appeal has been characterized as less provocative than Presley's, and I read a press release, and I'll paraphrase, it said something about he's about as sexy as a turnip or something like that. Like, there's nothing, <laughs> he's kind of the, the non-sexualized version of Elvis. His third single, Singing the Blues, which became a famous hit for Guy Mitchell, but he did it first, and it reached number one in January of 57. And one week later, Guy Mitchell released his version, and that blew away Tommy's version. Guy Mitchell is the version we're all familiar with today. 
His first complete full-length album was called The Tommy Steele Stage Show, and it was issued in March of 1957. And he was heavily merchandised. Uh, this was uh, pretty much the first, one of the first, if not the first, British pop stars to be heavily merchandised with tie-in merchandise such as sweaters, shoes, toy guitars, stuffed dolls and things. And only, this is very bizarre to me, only a few months after his first chart presence, he was filming his life story. <laughs> and his first film was called The Tommy Steele Story, released in 1957, and it was his life story. <laughs> and he wrote for that movie 12 new songs with his partners Bart and Pratt, which I mentioned earlier. And um, so in this movie, because of his history with music, it included not just rock and roll, but ballads and calypso music because he was also involved in those types of music in his performing career. So since this was a life story, it included those types of music as well. And the soundtrack from this movie, which was released on vinyl, had a hit song called A Handful of Songs. Stop my voice when it longs to sing you New songs and blues songs and songs to bring you happiness No more no less Moreover wherever we may roam to Or any shore where we may be blown to We'll know that we're gonna feel at home to La Bella Music are jazz and cha-cha-jazz Calypsos and street vendor cries Strains of old refrains Sleepy time, baby, lullabies I've got a handful of songs to sing you I've got a heart full of love to bring you True love for you, love and love's a thing you keep So here's a handful of song, good and cheap Just a handful of songs, just a handful of songs Only a handful of songs This was also the first album, complete album, to reach the number one spot on the UK charts by a British act. So other albums that were not British did, but this was the first British album to ever reach the number one position. And one year later, 
he was uh, given a Ivor Novello Award for Most Outstanding Song of the Year musically and lyrically for his hit single, A Handful of Songs. Still received a dual role in his second film, which was called The Duke Wore Jeans. And I'm guessing this is sort of a modern-day retelling of the Prince and the Pauper, because he played a dual role, The Duke Wore Jeans. That kind of gives mm. it away, that that's kind of what the premise this was released, released in 58, and again, the soundtrack from the film topped the, the UK charts. Uh, he married very young, in 1960, and he's still married to the same woman today, which is unheard of in Hollywood and <laughs> show business. They had a daughter in 1969, their only child. Her name is Emma Elizabeth Hicks. So in 1960, around the time he married, he um, decided that he was going to kind of leave behind his pop idol identity and wanted to concentrate more on acting and, and stage and comedy and musicals. So in London's West End, which is sort of the English equivalent of Broadway, he appeared in multiple musicals, well, musicals and comedies, straight comedies and musicals, and most notably in a revival of the classic comedy, which I believe is originally from the 18th century, She Stoops to Conquer. And then he played in a stage version, which was originally a film starring Danny Kaye from 1952. He appeared in a stage re-adaptation of Hans Christian Andersen, and he performed in the title role. And um, then, we mentioned earlier, he was the lead in the original cast on London's West End, which later he took it to Broadway, of Half a Sixpence, which premiered in 1963 in London and later moved to Broadway, and it ran for 677 performances. So now, that's sort of everything leading up to Disney. So he was a major pop star and a major Broadway performer. And then Disney decided, hey, maybe he'd be good in one of our films. <laughs> so he was a supporting lead in Walt Disney's Happiest Millionaire in 1967. That same year, they made a film adaptation of Half a Sixpence in which he reprised his role. And that didn't do as well as the the Broadway version, but if you've ever seen it, it's a delightful musical, and it gives you great Disney vibes because Tommy Steele was in it, and it's just kind of a classic musical with great songs. And um, then the next year, he co-starred in a film adaptation of the famous musical Finian's Rainbow, and he co-starred with Fred Astaire in that film. I've only seen a few scenes from the film, but it looks very fun and colorful. And who doesn't like Fred Astaire and who doesn't like the thought of Tommy Steele and Fred Astaire in the same scenes together? <laughs> <laughs> so um, after that, his career pretty much slowed down and um, he would only make occasional appearances, mostly on stage. He did a movie here, a movie there, a TV adaptation here, you know, 
very occasional, very sporadic. Some of the highlights would come in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, and they would be in um, London's West End. He did a revival of a stage version of Singing in the Rain in 1983. And then he did the touring version of a stage adaptation of the Billy Wilder comedy from the 50s, Some Like It Hot, you know, where the men dress like women to hide mm -hmm. from the mob, the Jack Lemmon film. Um, now, there had been a musical of Some Like It Hot. I believe it was called Sugar. This was not that. This was a adaptation of the film in a non-musical. It was just a straight comedy without... I'm sure it had a couple musical things in it because it was about a traveling band, but it wasn't a flat-out musical. And then, speaking of Dr. Doolittle, kind of to bring it all back together again, <laughs> in 2008, at the age of 71, he toured in the lead role of the stage musical adaptation of Dr. Doolittle. So, um, he's also a, a writer, and a sculptor. In fact, he wrote a children's novel entitled Quincy about a reject toy trying to save himself and his fellow rejects, kind of a misfit toys, in the basement of a toy store. And this book was released in 1983 and was actually based on a television film that he had started called Quincy's Quest from 1979, where Steele played Quincy. So he wrote a book based on the film that he had done for TV. And then he also wrote a book in 1981, a serious book for adults, called The Final Run About World War II and the Evacuation of Dunkirk. So probably a non-fiction historical work. And in recent years, again, Steele has been a respected sculptor, and four of his major works have been on public display. So that is the first song and our first character, Tommy Steele. So now, Tommy is in the um, house applying for the job of butler, and... Um, waiting for Mrs. Biddle to arrive, and suddenly, Mr. Biddle bursts into the kitchen where he's waiting and begins to sing a song called What's Wrong With That? about how he has been bitten on the finger by a crocodile. Of course, John thinks he's insane, and he doesn't realize that he really does have crocodiles. He thinks he's just a nutcase. So this song is kind of like uh, Fred McMurray as uh, Anthony Drexel Biddle's introduction, and kind of like it's kind of like him describing what he expects out of his family and his life, and and um, it's kind of an introductory song to his character. Are you a married man? Me, sir. No, sir. Well, then you wouldn't understand. I've been bit on my finger. It could have been my leg. It could have been my head, I might have died. In a time of mortal peril, any man should expect that his family will come rushing to his side. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? My family rushing to my side, what's wrong with that? Well, not a thing, so I'm sure. I'm a good-hearted husband. 
I'm generous and kind. No wife could have a life as free of care. So when a good-hearted husband has been bit, it's only right that his wife should share the agony he bears. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? I want my wife to share my life. What's wrong with that? Blast. Here in this house, I'm raising three strong, intelligent children. Where are they now in their father's time of need? I give them private tutors, the finest physical training, all in vain. Oh, the pain. I believe in the Bible. I believe in Uncle Sam and as sure as old glory waves above. I believe a man who's bitten has the right to demand that his family give him sympathy and love. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? The flag above, the Bible and love. What's wrong with that? During the song, he burst in the kitchen where two of the people that we've already mentioned, one of which is uh, John Lawless and the other we haven't talked about really yet, is Mrs. Worth, the maid. So tell us about Mrs. Worth, Ruthie. So Mrs. Worth is played by Hermione Badgley, and she is an actress that you've seen in many Disney things. Mm -hmm. um, she was born in 1906, and she died in 1986. Mm -hmm. And her Disney credits include Mary Poppins, 1964, The Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin from 1967, the Happiest Millionaire from 1967, and The Aristocats, 1970. Her can other... I point out something? She basically, with the exception of The Aristocats, she played the same character in all uh, three of those other movies. She's basically the same character, and she right. wore the same clothes, even. <laughs> her other non-Disney credits are just some highlights. Room at the Top, 1959, that's a film. The Broadway play... The Milk Train Doesn't Stop Here Anymore. That's 1963. She was on the TV show Maud from 1973 to 1978. And she provided a voice in the animated movie The Secret of Nim in 1982. So, of course, the other person in the scene is the aforementioned Fred McMurray. If you want a detailed description of Fred McMurray, go back a couple of years in our catalog of shows. We did a full episode on Fred McMurray. So Fred McMurray lived 1908 to 1991. He's actually the very first person to ever receive a Disney Legends Award. He was in several Disney films, and um, they would include The Shaggy Dog from 1959, The Absent-Minded Professor, 61, Bon Voyage, 62, Son of Flubber, 63, Follow Me Boys, 66, this film, The Happiest Millionaire, 67, and his final Disney appearance was in 1973 in Charlie and the Angel. And one thing that is interesting about Fred McMurray's Disney roles is two of them have exclamation points in the titles. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> he appeared in dozens and dozens of films, too many to say. We go through a lot of them in that Fred McMurray episode, but the two biggies that he's most known for that are not Disney are Devil and Demnity from 1944 and The Apartment from 1960. And of course, 
He was also on the long running, I think the third longest running situation comedy in television history. My Three Sons from 1960 to 1972. And now we get to Leslie Ann Warren, who appears at the end of the song and accompanies her father. And um, for her, we're going to get into the details. So, Ruthie, tell us all about Leslie Ann Warren. So, she plays Cordelia Cordy Drexel Biddle in the film. She was born in New York City, New York on August 16, 1946. And she attended the professional children's school at the age of six and the high school of music and art at the age of 13. So she was basically, you know, in some sort of arts since yeah. she was young. In 1961, she began training as a ballet dancer at the School of American Ballet at the age of 14. And then her career began in 1962 at 15 when she made a tape of herself singing the Queen of the Night aria from the Magic Flute. And this was the first and only time she sang opera. She entered the actor studio at the age of 17 and reputably the youngest applicant ever to be accepted. She made her Broadway debut in 1963 at 17 in 110 in the Shade. She won the Theater World Award for her performance in the 1965 flop musical Drat the Cat. I've never even heard of that one. I know. <laughs> but she won an award for it, even though it She flopped, was the only so. good thing about the whole Yeah, production. exactly. <laughs> and then in 1965, like I mentioned before, she mm -hmm. played Cinderella in the television musical production. Yeah, and that was a, a remake of the original from the 50s, starring who? you remember? Julie Andrews. And oh. that was the first time Walt Disney saw Julie Andrews. So history repeats itself. There you go. If you want to get noticed by Walt Disney, play Cinderella. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this film is actually her film debut. Mm -hmm. And um, then the following year, of course, we're going to talk about the one and only genuine original family band. Mm -hmm. And then in the 70s, she appeared in only two feature films, which was Pick Up on 101 from 1972 and Harry and Walter go to New York, 1976. And I don't think they're musicals. I don't think I don't, so either. I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure they're not musicals. In fact, she didn't really do much musicals. She then. did movies with music in it, and we'll mention yeah. a major yeah. one in a minute. But. Mm -hmm. So what she was doing in the 70s is mostly kind of focusing on TV, mm -hmm. and her first major role, which she received a Golden Globe nomination for playing Dana Lambert, in the drama series Mission Impossible. She was on that show from 1970 to 1971. Mm -hmm. And then she also, mostly through the 70s, was on TV movies and miniseries, including The Daughters of Joshua Cave, that's 1972, mm -hmm. The Letters, 1973, The Legend of Valentino, 1975, mm -hmm. Betrayal from 1978, and Pearl, 1978. Mm -hmm. She did make a guest star on the third season of The Muppet Show, and I believe that's on Disney Plus, so you can watch that. Yes, I just watched it the other day. It was cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, she played Lois Lane in the 1975 TV special It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, which was adapted from the Broadway musical of the same name. Which was kind of disco-fied. Mm, the original yeah. was much more broadway this sort of given a disco edge to it. <laughs> Interesting. <Yeah. laughs> 
Mm-hmm. And then she screen tested to play Lois Lane in the 1978 Superman film, but she didn't ultimately get the role that went to Margot Kidder. In 1978, she won a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Drama Series for the NBC miniseries Harold Robbins, 79 Park Avenue. In 1981, she returned to the big screen, starring alongside Ken Wall, George Pappard, and Donald Pleasant in Race for the Yankee Zephyr, which is a New Zealand suspense action thriller film. And this next one is something I specifically love her and remember her from. Right, so that's the 1983 film Victor Victoria, starring alongside Julie Andrews. Yes, it all comes full circle again. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And Leslie Ann Warren was nominated for a Golden Globe and an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for playing Norma Cassidy. She was amazing in that movie. (laughs) She played like a floozy perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) So she received another Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actress for starring opposite Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson in the 1984 musical comedy film, Songwriter. Very memorable for me as a kid. In 1985, she played Miss Scarlet in the comedy film version of the popular board game, Clue. Oh, yes. Of course. And very similar character, but different from her Victor Victoria role. So some of the other films that she starred in the late 80s, early 90s include Burglar from 1987 with Whoopi Goldberg, Cop from 1988 with James Woods, Worth Winning from 1989 with Mark Harmon, Life Stinks from 1991 with Mel Brooks, and Pure Country 1992 with George Strait. She played Princess Janetta in the 1987 fairy tale theater episode The Dancing Princesses, an adaptation of the fairy tale The Twelve Dancing Princesses. That was the um, Shelley Duvall series, remember? Yeah, the fairy yeah. tale theater. Mm-hmm. And also, I should mention before you go on that one of the things she did, which was really cute on her Muppet Show appearance, she did like a ballet representing Beauty and the Beast. And she. Oh. She was the beauty, of course, and they had one of those big Muppets that walk mm-hmm. around like. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. he Sweetums. was the. It was it was Sweetums' brother or something. Oh okay. Different, but he was like Sweetums, mm-hmm. and he was the beast. It was really cute. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So in 1986, she was prominently featured in Bob Seger's popular music video for his hit song "American Storm." And then in 1989, she appeared in the Aerosmith video, Janie's Got a Gun, where she played Janie's mother. Mm. And then she was also featured in the video for the Eagles song, Life in the Fast Lane. So she received nominations for Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Limited Series or Movie, and Golden Globe Award for Best Actress, Miniseries, or Television Film nominations for the movie, the TV movie, Family of Spies, that came out in 1990. Those awards have long names, which is why it was a long thing there. In 1995, she co-starred opposite Ben Kingsley in the television film Joseph. I'm assuming that's a biblical story of some sort. And then she had a major role in Steven Soderbergh's movie The Limey that came out in 1999, starring Terrence Stamp. Okay, now we're in the 2000s. (laughs) 
In the 2000s, she appeared in several independent films, most notably the 2002 comedy drama Secretary, playing the mother of the title character. This is the one of the things that I remember her for in the 2000s, is she had a recurring role on the NBC sitcom Will and Grace, yeah. 2001 to 2006, as Will Truman's father's mistress. And then in 2005, in the ABC comedy drama Desperate Housewives, she played Susan Meyer's mother. Other television credits that she has include Touched by an Angel, The Practice, Crossing Jordan, and Less Than Perfect. From 2008 to 2012, she played the role of Jinx Shannon, the lead character's alcoholic mother, in the USA Network drama series In Plain Sight. A few other films she appeared in in the 2000s is... Peep World from 2010, Jobs from 2013, and I Am Michael 2015. In 2013, she reunited with Clue castmates Christopher Lloyd and Martin Mull when they guest starred in an episode of Psych. Mm -hmm. And then again with Martin Mull in 2015, guest starring in an episode of Community. In 2016, she had a recurring role in the star's comedy Blunt Talk, and in 2018, she appeared in the Netflix superhero series Daredevil as Esther Fall. In 2019, she co-starred in the short-lived Lifetime comedy drama series American Princess. And she also appeared opposite Sarah Drew in the Lifetime Christmas movie Twinkle All the Way. And she still continues to work in films and television today. Yeah, she's not retired by any means. Right. But I will say... She's never really been all in. She's just basically picked the things she's interested in. You know, she's always been working, but she's never been like, I have to be in every movie. You know, she's never been like, she just occasionally will appear in something because she finds it interesting, which I like. I like that mm -hmm. attitude. Yeah. So that's Leslie Ann Warren, and we won't really have the opportunity like Tommy Steele to discuss her on a podcast again so we really thought we should give her the full bio treatment yeah definitely so our next musical number comes along after Cordy has told her father that she is expecting a gentleman caller she goes upstairs to prepare and meanwhile this kind of dapper Dan looking guy with a with a uh, flowers and a box of chocolate shows up and uh Fred McMurray's character is none too pleased, but also his two sons take notice. Played by Eddie Hodges and Paul Peterson, sort of begin to sing the song to tell this gentleman caller that, you know, Cordy's not like the other girls. She's basically, if you want to date Cordy, you need to learn about boxing, basically, is what the song is saying. And it's telling him about other romances that she's had and how because he wasn't familiar with her you know sport that um it ended up badly so in the midst of this song they accidentally end up punching him out and it's kind of a fun little it's a fun little kind of ragtime style number and this movie takes place when ragtime was at its kind of peak of popularity so it's perfect Remember 
remember Harry Applegate? Yeah, he took Cordy on a date. Oh, what a dapper dance. Curly teeth and tennis tan. Remember him well. Thought he was a Romeo. Tried to kiss our sis and oh, Harry Duck, but too late. Father bought him an upper plate. Watch your footwork. Better learn to bob and weave. Sister Cordy's got dynamite up her sleeve. What a jab. Dynamite up her sleeve. What a hook. Dynamite up her sleeve. Keep your guard up. Archie Baxter came here twice. First time out, he acted nice. Romance was in the air. Oh, they made a lovely pair. Beautiful. Second date, it was a dance. He grabbed her tight. This was his chance. Cordy only bruised that sport. Father settled it out of court. Watch your footwork. Better learn to bob and weave. Sister Cordy's got dynamite up her sleeve. What a right! Dynamite up her sleeve. What a cross! Dynamite up her sleeve. Keep your guard up. Say, do you remember Harvey Drew? Oh yeah, captain of the Dartmouth crew. That's him. A letterman three years. Muscles between his ears. Now be generous while rowing Cordy round the lake. A crude advance did Harvey make. A gruesome scene. It happened so fast. Next week they remove the cast. So watch your footwork. Better learn to bob and weave. Sister Cordy's got dynamite up her sleeve. What a faint! Dynamite up her sleeve. What an uppercut! Dynamite up her sleeve. It's just a fun little number that doesn't. It kind of it does carry the plot in that it kind of describes Cordy's character. Mm-hmm. Which is which is important to understand this. this yeah, this like story. where she's at currently yeah. in the story, and where yeah. her her life is at, and what's mm-hmm. going on with her. You know. So anyway, let's talk about the two actors who played her brothers. And it's strange that they only appeared in this one scene, and we never see them again in the whole movie, which just seems so odd. They do explain that they're going off to college, but. So Eddie Hodges was in one other Disney film, and we've talked about that film as its own episode, Summer Magic, from 1963. Uh, But he's probably, his breakout performance was, in 1959, he co-starred with Frank Sinatra in the movie A Hole in the Head, and he sang with him um, High Hopes. You know that song, mm-hmm. he's got high hopes, it's kind of famous, and he was the little boy that sang that with Frank Sinatra. And then in 1960, perfect casting, because he's a redhead and looks, you know, freckle-faced kind of kid, he played Huckleberry Finn in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. But he, he stopped acting at, once he grew up. He, he went on to other things, so that's pretty much all I have for him for credits. Paul Peterson 
was in one other Disney thing, but not in any other Disney movies. He was one of the original Mouseketeers on the Mickey Mouse Club. He wasn't one of the... There were different groups of Mouseketeers, and he wasn't one of the main group. He was one of, like, the second group of Mouseketeers. So he's not, he's, he's not one of the ones that is in the roll call at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So he was on the Mickey Mouse Club and then the Happiest Millionaire. And those are his only Disney credits. And he has a few film credits, but really the only one that really I've ever heard of or even seen is a, is a pretty well-known movie called Houseboat from 1958. I think Raquel Welch is in that and Cary Grant. But what he's most known for, he was on a eight-year-long series on TV. He played uh, Donna Reed's son on the Donna Reed Show. And he was on all eight seasons, so you got to watch him grow up. He was a little boy when he started, and then by the time the show went off the air, he was like probably it was late, like 18, 19, around 20. Well, well, wait a minute, 45, 55, so in 65 he would have been 20, so he was 21 when the show ended, so he was playing younger than he was. But while he was on the uh, Donna Reed show, you know how like Ricky Nelson would perform songs on the Ozzy and Harriet show and things like that? Also on the Donna Reed show, Shelley Fabre had a big hit number. Johnny Angel, you know the song Johnny Angel? Yep. Mm-hmm. He too had some hit songs, but not quite as big as Johnny Angel from uh, his time on the Donna Reed show. And he became quite an accomplished recording star, but never to the levels of Ricky Nelson or, or was it in that league quite. And his, I wrote down his uh, five biggest songs. She Can't Find Her Keys from 1962. <laughs> From 1962. Lollipops and Roses from 1962, which wasn't a big hit for him, but would later become a big hit for Andy Williams, just a few years later. My Dad was his biggest hit from 1963. Amy from 1963, and also his last kind of chart single that ever hit the charts was A Little Bit for Sandy in 1968. He's still very active in show business, and he's active in um, activism and all sorts of uh, worthwhile causes to this day. Good guy. So the next thing we're going to talk about is the song Valentine Candy. After Cordy comes downstairs and Charlie Parker, her would-be suitor, has been knocked out and runs out of the house terrified, she's upset. She runs up to her room and she sings a very lovely song called Valentine Candy, which is about, you know, a girl going from childhood into womanhood, kind of a coming of age song. Again, sort of describing the feelings and emotions that Cordy is going through in this time in her life. Oh, Miss Cordelia Drexel Biddle, I thought I knew you well. But now, Miss Cordelia Drexel Biddle, I just can't tell. Are you Valentine Candy or Valentine? 
boxing gloves Lately you seem very strange What in the world's coming over you Everything's starting Are you sonnets by Shelley or Rover Boys? Once any answer would do. Why are you suddenly wondering which kind of someone are you? a boy meant to spar with or gaze at a star with should you kiss him or blacken his eye now if he buys you roses a right to the nose is really not quite the proper reply you're so lost in the middle of in between is your destiny canvas or crepe de sheen will you someday be someone at song is Strengthen the Dwelling. It turns out that uh, one of the activities of Anthony Drexel Biddle is a Bible class, but it's only a pseudo-Bible class. It's actually a, what would you call it, a, a boxing gym class. He has yeah. a gym in his, in his mm -hmm. barn, and it they sing religious songs and things, but it's really under the guise of being a boxing class. So they all wear t uh, they all wear sweaters that say Biddle Bible School, but then they box each other. It's, it's a bizarre. It's based on a true story. Truth is stranger than fiction, folks. Again, with the alligators, that's all true. <laughs> so 
he sings a song, they sing a song as their exercise and called Strength in the Dwelling. Strength in the dwelling of the Lord, fashioned the framework board by board. Here in his image now we stand, building his fortress strong and grand. It is written that the body and mind of has to be mentioned that this whole time John Lawless is still like waiting to be interviewed for his job but every time he bumps into somebody they put him to work without ever having been interviewed and it's a whole running gag and finally we reach a point with this next song I'll Always Be Irish where he formally meets Mr. Biddle and Mr. Biddle takes a a liking to him because of this philosophy that he has in life where although he wants to become an American and will be proud to be an American, he'll always also be Irish. So he sings a song about how he's proud to be Irish and it's like a Irish jig and uh, Mrs. Worth comes out and dances and while all this is happening, the mother who's upstairs hears all the commotion and comes out and looks down and sees them dancing and everything and the phone rings. So while they're all dancing, she comes down into the aforementioned phone booth and um, it's the employment agency and she says, yes, he will suit our needs just fine. So now we know John has officially been hired. On the night before I sailed away, they come from far and near. All me friends and all me kin to shed a part and tear. We knew we'd never meet again, and yet was clear to see. I'd always be a part of them, and them a part of me. I'll always be Irish, cause that's how I began. I'll always be Irish, I'll say that to any man. And when I'm an American, I'll be a good one too. I'll be truly as American as Irish to you. Hey, that's pretty good. He'll be truly as American as Irish to you. Ask for Irish Jew in Ireland and see what you get. I never thought of that. In Ireland, all the Jews Irish. I'll always be Irish, a fact I'll not deny. I'll always be Irish, and I'll hold me head up high. I'll wear the green some patties day, and yet for all of that, I'll be truly as American as Casey at the bat. He'll be truly as American as Casey at the bat. Come on, Cordy. Hey! <laughs> if you can win a one-step contest, you ought to be able to do this. You didn't like dancing. Oh, it's that walking business I don't like. That's <laughs> roll, folks. Hey! 
cheese and ate bread and cheese in sidewalk cafes. Lived in a garret, water beret, what would I be? An Irish If I went to Tibet and bought me a yak and travel Siberia riding his back, the peasants would point at me, what would they say? Oh, young a wicky ticky, oh, young a wangtang, oh, young a wicky ticky Irishman. Right! Right. But if I went to Spain and grew a moustache, strummed a guitar and wore me a sash, became a torero and fought me a mother, Rear Garson, played her. She was born in 1904 and she died in 1996. And some of the films that highlight her career that are not Disney include... This is her Good- only Disney credit, right? Right, yes. Yeah. So, Goodbye Mr. Chips, 1938. One of the film adaptations of Pride and Prejudice. This is the 1940 version. Mm-hmm. Her most popular movie, probably because she won an Academy Award for this, is Mrs. Miniver, 1942. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to mention that she also provided the narration for the Rankin and Bass Christmas short Little Drummer Boy from 1968. Ah, uh, yes. So now, um, just to give you context to the next song, Cordy comes downstairs, her aunt is down there trying to convince... Mr. and Mrs. Biddle, her parents, that Cordy should go off to a finishing school. And the father is very much opposed to it. But Cordy overhears the conversation and informs them, pretty much based on what had just happened with her suitor, that she would like to go to the, to the finishing school. So the next scene 
is actually I'll always be Irish after it's already been decided that she's going to the finishing school, right? But then directly after I'll always be Irish, we cut away to the finishing school in New Jersey. And we are in her dormitory room with her roommate. And her roommate is played by Joyce Bullifant. Tell us about her, Ruthie. So, she was born in 1937, and she is still active today. This, again, was her only Disney credit. Although, I will mention that she was married to uh, James MacArthur for about 10 years, and he started many Disney films. Yes, of course. And I didn't realize this, but he's actually also the son of Helen Hayes, so I didn't know that. Who also starred in several Disney films. Right. But some of her popular credits include um, Auntie Mame in 1956 on Broadway, mm-hmm. Under the Yum Yum Tree, 1960, also on Broadway. Mm-hmm. She was in The Happiest Millionaire, 1967. And then she did a lot of TV after that. So not so much films, but she was on The Bill Cosby Show from 1969 to 1971 as a regular member of the cast. And then she was also on the Mary Tyler Moore show from 1971 to 1977. I would call that not a regular, but a recurring role. Mm-hmm. She wasn't on every episode, but every few episodes she would appear. Mm-hmm. And she played one of the main, the wives of one of the main characters, Murray Slaughter's character. Yeah. She had, she was a regular cast member of the Alice spinoff called Flo from 1980 to 1981. That was a short-lived show. Mm-hmm. And then she was a regular guest on a lot of game shows, but predominantly the match game from 1973 to 1982. Mm-hmm. And then her final film um, that she was in was Airplane from 1980. Yes, yeah, so she played the mother of the girl that was sick. It was really just a small part, but really memorable and funny. Mm-hmm. So what happens in the Bayum Pum Pum scene is Cordy has been invited to a posh party that's being thrown by her very well-known in social circles aunt and uncle. And they were duty-bound to invite her because they live nearby and... She's staying there, so she asks Joyce Bullifant's character named Rosemary to teach her how to flirt. And she says that she'll teach her if she gets her an invite to the party as well. So they decide on a deal, and so they sing this whole song that's kind of like a, a um, tango number called Ba Yum Pum Pum. The tango was really popular during this time in history, and it was really considered a scandalous, for the time, dance. So she teaches her how to, how to do this dance and how to, you know, pretend that they're bored. It's kind of like, even though we're actually excited, you just pretend that you're bored and then it drives the men crazy. That's the premise of the song. If a girl wants to be popular nowadays, there's one thing that she absolutely needs to know. What? Bayum pum pum. Bayum pum pum? Bayum pum pum. Bayum pum pum. Bayum pum pum. Bayum Oh, so mysterious, so 
enthusiasm is très passé. You must slink across the floor as if it's a dreadful bore to the rhythm of bayam pum pum bayam pum pum bayam pum pum bayam. Neat and naughty, feet of barrow, hollow cheeks and black mascara. Bayam pum pum bayam. Okay, what's next? The men in college always acknowledge. Bye, yum. Until the dawn, as if you're about to yawn. To the rhythm of bye, yum, pum, pum, bye, yum, pum, pum. Attitude, Corey. Bye, yum, pum, pum, bye, yum. Today, the key to being wanted is just to glide as if you're haunted. Song, it fades away to the party where the song is also playing, and we see all the dancers in their fancy ball gowns and everything. And Cordy is behind a, a um, glass doors in a separate room, looking at everybody behind the curtains, practicing before she goes out and tries to join in on the dancing. And a young man named Angier Duke, we haven't been introduced formally yet catches her in the act of this practicing and she's embarrassed and she walks away. So she ends up being introduced to some really dull, you know, kind of socialite men and she's not terribly interested in them and they're not that interested in her so she makes up an excuse when they start playing a song that she's promised it to someone else and so John Davidson's character steps in and says that, because she's really, she's made up the whole story and he overhears it, so he steps in and says that he's the one that, that uh, she promised the dance to in order to help her 
get away from this awkward social situation. So they start dancing and they end up falling in love and they end up dancing out onto the balcony. It's a very romantic scene. It reminds me of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers number, you know. So mm -hmm. um, they break into this really beautiful song called Are We Dancing? The whole thing is, um, according to Cordy's father, waltzes are for old people. So she, he says, are they? So he proves to her that waltzes aren't just for old people by doing this romantic dance with her. Are we dancing? Are we really here? Is this feeling something real? Or will it disappear? Are we dancing? Does the music soar? Was this lovely song I hear ever heard before? Your eyes confessing things I alone can see, or is my imagination flying away with me? Are we dancing? Say we really into the sky and touched a star. Is this feeling something real or will it Confessing things I alone can see Or is my imagination flying away with me?
So let's talk about John Davidson. He's the last one we're going to do a full bio on. So he was actually born to two Baptist ministers in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Both his mother and father were Baptist ministers. Very religious. And later he lived in West Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Been there. Good college out there. And later he moved to White Plains, New York, and he graduated in, uh, at the White Plains High School. And then he went to Denison University. So now you know the rest of the story. I don't know why I said that. Um, so he's been married twice. He has three children, two from his first marriage and one from his second marriage. But his second marriage has been a very long, happy one. He's been married since 1983 to a former backup singer named Rhonda Rivera, still married happily to her all these years. He was a member of the regular repertory company on the short-lived CBS variety show, The Entertainers, from 1964 to 65. Uh, and in the 60s, around 64, he became a very successful recording artist. He has a gorgeous voice, very handsome he was when he was a young man, still a good-looking man for his age, of course, and um, he definitely struck a chord with uh, the young women, because he was a gorgeous man with a beautiful voice, and that's all you really need to become famous, right? Right. <laughs> so, um, he recorded 12 albums throughout the 60s and 70s, but his real breakthrough performance, the first thing that really got him noticed... He was in a made-for-TV version of the Broadway musical The Fantastics in 1964. It was like a made-for-TV based on the, the play. He co-starred with Ricardo Montalban, of all people. I've seen it. It's on YouTube. It's pretty good. So he, he um, sort of, people took notice from that. And his career kind of slowly grew out of that. In the summer of 66, he hosted two primetime variety hours. This was during the off-season of various uh, television series. So in the summer months, before they really did a lot of reruns, they would have short-lived replacement series, you know. And so these were two of those one was called the Craft Summer Music Hall, and later the second one was called the John Davidson Show. So he hosted those, and then his next big break was The Happiest Millionaire, and it was his film debut. Again, Walt Disney has a knack for discovering talent. <laughs> and he signed a contract, as did Leslie Ann Warren. It was actually a three-picture deal but they ended up releasing him from his contract after the second film. We'll get into the reasons why when we talk about Family Band later. During this time, from 1966 to 1981, during the original run of the original version of the Hollywood Squares, he was a regular guest. He made hundreds of appearances. Um, from 1966 to 1981. And he was kind of known for being able to fool the guests, like um, the, the, the um, players, because the, the game was that they would ask the 
person in the square a question. It was always a celebrity. And then the, um, the contestant would say true or false, like, did, is that the correct answer or not? So he was really good at tricking the um, contestants into believing a bunch of garbage. Like, he'd make up a whole story about some study that was just complete rubbish. And, <clears throat> and they would really, they'd believe him. He was really good at fooling them. He kind of became known for, that was sort of his thing. So you never knew what he was telling the truth or, or making up a complete story. So that was a lot of fun. Of course, in 1974, another kind of a Disney credit, a one-off thing, he appeared on the special, we watched this together, Ruthie, Sandy in Disneyland with Sandy Duncan. Mm-hmm. And um, he sang a number with Sandy, and then he, he um, sang Top of the World from the Carpenters on a um, fire truck going down Main Street. <laughs> mm. He was also, like um, some of the other actors we've talked about, he was a regular on many different variety shows and, and, and um, spent, you know, walk-in star for one-off episodes, including the Ed Sullivan Show, Sonny and Cher Comedy Hour, and then more for, those were more for his singing, and then for more of his acting and comedy abilities. Uh, he was on Love American Style, The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, and then randomly Spencer for Hire. <laughs> In night from 1973 to 74, he was on a short-lived sitcom, and he co-starred with Sally Field, and it's called The Girl with Something Extra. And you know what the something extra was, Ruthie? She had ESP. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds funny. Yeah. So in 1974, in one of his most bizarre appearances, he was on an episode of The Streets of San Francisco in an episode called The Mask of Death. He plays a um, cross-dressing lounge singer. Today we would know that more as a drag queen. And he murders his fans. Several. So there's this, like, serial murders going on and they suspect it's him and it's a whole crime drama. The whole time he's portraying a, 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 a drag queen and at certain points he uh, impersonates various uh, famous women such as Carol Channing and he sings Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend dressed like Carol Channing. It's a very bizarre role and uncomfortable to watch because it doesn't stand up to today's standards of what is and isn't acceptable. <laughs> Let me just say that. Anyway, I've seen it. I think you can see it on YouTube if you're curious, but I don't recommend it. So as, as a singles artist, he um, placed seven records on the adult contemporary chart. And his biggest hit was a song called Every Time I Sing a Love Song, which was released in 1976, and it peaked at number seven on the adult contemporary chart. In 1977, this is sad, but I thought it was kind of a something that had to be said. In 1977, he was present at a Beverly Hills Supper Club in um, 
uh, Southgate, Kentucky, and he was going to make an appearance as the headline performer, and a fire broke out before he went on stage. Ended up killing 165 people. Davidson helped several other people out of the building before he himself escaped. And um, unfortunately, the fire ended up killing his music director, Douglas Harrow. And, um, but fortunately, he was not even injured. And he did help other, several other people to escape. And later he um, participated in a charity concert to raise funds for the families of the fire victims. Kind of a sad chapter in an otherwise happy life. Mm -hmm. In the late 70s, he's one of four regular guest hosts, along with Joey Bishop, McQueen Stevenson, and John Rivers, on The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. And he hosted the show over 87 times. Remember when they would, he would only appear like Wednesday through Friday, and then on mm -hmm. Tuesdays they would always have a guest host? Yeah. They had like a, a revolving door of four different hosts during that period, and he was one of the four. Most famously, Joan Rivers, but he was also one of them. And in the early 1980s, he hosted his own talk show. And it aired daily in syndication from 1980 to 1982. So you didn't mention one of the things that I actually, I think the first time I saw him was in this TV show in the 80s. And he was a co-host with two other people. On, oh, that's incredible. Yes. So that, that ran from 1980 to 1984. And he was a that host was a with Fran Tarkenton and Kathy Lee Crosby. Thank you for reminding me, Lucy. Yeah. I'm glad we got that in because <laughs> I forgot to write that down, even though I very well did know that. Yeah. So, of course, he was a co-host on That's Incredible. Remember when they would go to commercial? They'd show the audience and they'd all yell out, That's incredible! Yeah. <laughs> and he sang on that show all the time, too. Yes. So. Now he broke into game shows in 85, when he hosted a daytime game show for NBC called The Time Machine. And most famously, in 1986, and I was surprised how short-lived this was, because I just totally remember him being the host of Hollywood Squares. He was the host of Hollywood Squares from 1986 to 1989. Um, and to me, like, I don't even remember Peter Marshall being the host. I just think of John Davidson as the host of the Hollywood Squares the first person who comes to mind, but I think I was at a formative age during those years, so that's probably why. His other film appearances included Coffee, Tea, or Me in 1973, the classic epic drama The Concord Airport 79 <laughs> in 1979, and the very serious picture Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders 2 in 1980. <laughs> and then, I don't remember him this, but apparently he was in Edward Scissorhands in 1990. Hmm. He had a small role, an unmemorable role, obviously. So he has retired from film, but occasionally, and, and lounge singing and all those types of things, but occasionally he has come back to do various things. He, um, 
will often do off-Broadway revivals of famous musicals and things, and, uh, you know, community theater type stuff. Well, you know, a step above community theater, like first level theater, you know. And also, um, he wrote a autobiographical play that he also performed in based on his own life called Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, based, based on his life um, being in a, you know, being the son of, of a minister and sort of his um, moving away from that type of lifestyle. And then um, from 1993 to 1994, you know, Branson, Missouri has a lot of, you know, the, this type of entertainment in it today, kind of this Broadway, like old school singers and things like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And so he actually had a theater in Branson, Missouri, named after him, and he performed daily for over a year from 1993 to 1994. I don't know if the theater is still called the John Davis Theater. It probably is, but he doesn't make regular appearances there anymore. So that's John Davidson. He's still around, but semi-retired. So it looks like we're just about at the two-hour mark. So I think we're going to have to conclude the rest of this episode in the next episode. So this will be a two-parter. So in the next episode, we'll be talking about the rest of the songs and plot of The Happiest Millionaire. And then we'll get into the one and only genuine original family band. So please join us in just a few weeks for part two. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed episode 162 of the Jiminy Crickets podcast, and we'll be back in a few weeks to conclude our look at The Happiest Millionaire and the one and only Genuine Original Family Band. Ruthie, where can everybody find Jiminy Crickets on the web? You can listen to all of our past shows, including audio versions of Dateline Jiminy Crickets on our website, jcricketpodcast.blogspot.com. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts under the name Jiminy Crickets. That's with an exclamation point, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Over on our YouTube channel, we share updates to the Disney Crisp website, including the Disneyland Magical Audio Tour, as well as past episodes of the Jiminy Crickets podcast and Dateline Jiminy Crickets. You can find our channel if you search for DisneyChris.com. And remember, .com is spelled out D-O-T-C-O-N. And don't forget to subscribe and click on the notification bell. You can also join in the conversation over on our Facebook page, Jiminy Crickets Podcast, where you can not only interact with Chris and me and all the fellow cricketeers, but you can also stay up to date on all the latest details of our many worldwide web endeavors. On Facebook, Chris can be found under the name Chris Linden, that's L-Y-N-D-O-N as in Lyndon Johnson, and on Twitter at DisneyChris73. If you would like to contact the show with your comments or questions, our email address is DisneyChrisDOTCOM at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. I just became a Twitch streamer. Every Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern, I will be hosting a live stream on my new Twitch channel called DisneyChris underscore audio underscore fun. Also follow my new stream-related group on Facebook, which is Disneyland Audio Fun. 
Our official Instagram account is at DisneyChris underscore JC underscore podcast. There are already hundreds of colorful vintage Disney images on our page, and we are continually adding more fun Disney things to see. This is also a great place to get updates to our podcast, as well as the Disney Chris website and my new weekly Twitch stream. So be sure to follow us on Instagram today. My website is DisneyChris.com, home to the Disney Song of the Day, the Disney Song of the Year timeline, and the Disneyland Magical Audio Tour, where you'll find over 3,000 audio tracks from the happiest place on earth. We would also like to give special thanks to those who help us spread our magic with their generous support. You can help support Dateline Jiminy Crickets, the Jiminy Crickets podcast, the Disney Chris website, and my new Twitch stream by becoming a Patreon subscriber. By joining our illustrious roster of supporters, you will receive exclusive rewards every month, including audio content, Disney video commentaries, and an exclusive Patreon subscribers-only podcast. Additionally, your name will be featured on screen during the closing credits of each Dateline Jiminy Crickets podcast. Be sure to check out all of our donation levels and special rewards at patreon.com slash You can also make a one-time only donation or recurring donation via PayPal. Recurring PayPal donators qualify for the same rewards as our Patreon subscribers. You will find links to all of these donation options at DisneyChris.com slash donate. I also want to give a very special thank you to Brian Crawford, who helped us in our research. He recently did an episode on The Happiest Millionaire, and a few months ago, uh, he did an episode on the one and only genuine original family band, and he lent me his uh, notes and other materials in order to do research. So please check out his um, live streams, which are still available on his YouTube channel. And uh, also check out his Instagram, which is Keeping Walt in Disney, all one word. Well, Ruthie, do you have any final words for our audience today? Yes. The flag above the Bible and love. What's wrong with that? Thanks for listening. And always let your conscience be your guide. And your heart is in your dream.